This week's episode is brought to you by the More Cute Stories series, now with volumes 1 through 4 and volume 1 featured in ebook format. I know a lot of people have been asking for it, and now you can get it in written form, so check it out on Amazon, iTunes, and all other booksellers today. Welcome to Season 3! Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show, and home of the world's first pair of independently born, identical twins. I'm George. And I am Jeff. And... Yeah, I wondered where you were going with that. What's up? (laughs) Everybody. How goes it? I don't know why George is laughing. I'm trying to have a conversation with you guys. Well, that's true. It's it's completely one sided, but it's, that's it's, okay. It's not one sided. I can hear what they're saying. I can hear what you're saying, guys. Don't worry. We're we're driving to, and slash are walking, or or exercising, or exercising, or, or doing on the computer. Or, oh, exactly. Because they could be at work. Listening. I'm covering all these bases right now, guys. That's impressive. I'm, I I want to know what you were doing. Tell me what you're doing. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that with everyone. I don't know why George is laughing. He, well, he just thinks whatever he's doing is ridiculous. Somebody said they want us to move on with the history segment. I, think. I didn't say that. Oh, somebody else said that. Yes, in the audience. Somebody the else there. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll do that for you, sir. We'll move on. It's time for Disney History. Now, for those of you who've been there before, I'm sure you already know this, but the Disneyland Hotel is an absolutely gorgeous part of the Disneyland Resort in lovely Anaheim, California. Now, while these days it's owned by the Walt Disney Company and operated by the Parks and Resorts Division, uh, that wasn't always the case. You know, in the early 1950s, Disneyland was in a pretty remote area outside of Anaheim, and Walt Disney wanted to build a hotel specifically for Disneyland visitors to stay overnight, since the park was a pretty far drive away from anything of note in Southern California. Um, but unfortunately, most of Disney's financial resources were significantly, significantly depleted by the construction of the park because making magic is not cheap. Well, it is for us. Well, for us it's cheap, but for Walt Disney in the it 1950s okay. was a blot. Makes sense. Well then, initially, Walt had tried to get his friend Art Linkletter to build a hotel, but Linkletter declined. And at the time, he didn't really think that the park would succeed. <laughs> and he would later kick himself for not taking Walt up on this offer. Walt instead went to Jack Rather and negotiated a deal with him and his business partner, Maria Helen Alvarez. Uh, It was negotiated that Rather Alvarez Productions would own and operate a hotel called the Disneyland Hotel across the street from Disneyland. Rather was a Texas oil millionaire turned film producer who already owned hotels in Las Vegas and Palm Springs and co-owned television stations in Tulsa and San San Diego with Alvarez. So they had the money and the desire to make the deal happen. The original Disneyland Hotel was designed by the firm of Pereira and Luckman, and it actually opened on October 5th, 1955, nearly three months after Disneyland opened. Now there was a various strikes that caused the opening to be postponed from the August date advertised and all the pre-opening uh, 
promotional materials, and the hotel itself only had a very limited capacity when it initially opened. The very first night of operation, they only saw seven rooms available for paying customers, with the eighth room that was available being used as a reservation area and lobby. Now, that's pretty unheard of if you think about that today. <laughs> the, uh, the original hotel, it only consisted of just over 100 rooms in five two-story guest room complexes, which were later known as the South Garden Rooms and even later as Oriental Gardens. And the rooms went for a whopping $15 a night. And they had shopping and dining and recreational facilities that were added in early in 1956. And additionally, it also had a doctor and a dentist on site, as well as a barber and a beauty shop. So this was like a one-stop resort location. I can't imagine. Well, you could need a dentist on vacation. You could. I mean, what if you bought into a Mickey's Premium and mm -hmm. you broke your teeth? Mm, hopefully not. Or, so. or you've been into a churro that's been there for, <laughs> for way too long. <laughs> yeah, and you broke your teeth. <laughs> okay, so though it was open for business in October 1955, it didn't have its official grand opening until August 25th, 1956, with many Hollywood celebrities attending the festivities. It was quickly expanded in 1956 with three North Garden guest room structures, one more North Garden structure in 1958, and finally, two more North Garden structures in 1960. The hotel now had over 300 guest rooms and suites, and it was one of the first hotels in the region to offer accommodations for four persons per room. When the Rather-Alvarez partnership ended in 1958, Rather bought Alvarez's share of the hotels, making him sole owner of the Disneyland Hotel. Uh, over the years, the hotel was expanded to include three guest room towers, Sierra, 1962 and expanded in 1966, Marina in 1970, and Bonita in 1978. Now, guests traveled between the hotel and the Disneyland Park main entrance by tram. And then the Disneyland monorail was extended from its original 1959 configuration and a station opened at the hotel in 1961. And recreational areas, attractions, and a convention center were also added all over the years. But uh, on June 15, 1970, uh, an adjacent uh, recreation vehicle park called Vacation Land opened, and it had its own pool and its own clubhouse. And the hotel itself also featured a Richfield service station for several years as part of uh, Richfield's sponsorship of, of several uh, Disneyland attractions, including the Autopia. When our um, BFF, Michael Eisner, became chairman and CEO of Walt Disney Productions in 1984, he, of course, wanted to bring the Disneyland Hotel under the Walt Disney Company's umbrella. Rather refused to sell, just as he had refused Walt Disney many years before when Walt wanted to buy it from him. Uh, Rather died two months after Eisner took over Disney, and four years later, in 1988, Disney bought the entire Rather company. At the time, Rather's company also owned the RMS Queen Mary and Hughes H4 Hercules, also known as the Spruce Goose, in Long Beach, as well as the rights to the Lone Ranger and the Lassie TV series. Though Disney kept the hotel, it has since sold the other assets that came with the purchase. Now, in early 1997, Vacation Land was closed and demolished completely. Then, in 1999, a significant portion of the hotel was also demolished, all to make way for the wonderful downtown Disney and parking areas for the newly expanding Disneyland Resort. I sound like a PR person there. I'm trying to put a <laughs> positive spin on this. Now, most buildings east of the Sierra Tower and north of the Marina Tower were demolished, including the original hotel buildings from 1955. And the only buildings remaining in these areas are the convention center and the parking garage, which, as we all know, parking garages are very important. <laughs> so, 
Recreational facilities were built in the quad between the three towers, previously the site of the Water Wonderland, to replace those that were previously located east of the Sierra Tower. There's a lot of east-northwest towers and whatnot, but kind of confusing exactly. to get the layout of this place. We should have a map. We should have a map. Yeah. If only there was a map of Disneyland. Hmm. We'll, we'll find one later. Okay, so fair we'll enough. put it in there. Okay. So streets previously used to access the hotel by car were destroyed, so a new street was built to access the hotel. Tram service from the hotel was also discontinued, leaving the monorail as the only vehicular mode of transportation from park to hotel. The loss of hotel rooms was offset with the opening of Disney's Grand Californian Hotel in 2001, but many of the restaurants and amenities that existed prior to 1999 were just never replaced. Today, none of the original hotel buildings from 1955 remain standing. Very little of the hotel, uh, you know, other than parking areas and service facilities, sit outside of the perimeter created by the three remaining guest room towers. Original signs and other artifacts from several of the stores and restaurants demolished with the plaza are on display in the hotel's employee cafeteria. Now, in downtown Disney itself, uh, ESPN Zone, the Rainforest Cafe, and AMC Theaters now occupy much of the former hotel space that was east of the Sierra Terra. And in 2007, the Marina, Sierra, and Bonita Towers were renamed Magic, Dreams, and Wonder, respectively. And other buildings in the sprawling hotel complex houses uh, restaurants, stores, offices, recreational facilities, the convention and uh, banquet center facilities. And the complex itself, uh, it also features a gazebo and a garden area that are used for Disney's fairytale weddings and honeymoons. And uh, they, were, they constructed a new downtown Disney monorail station, uh, and it was actually built on the same site as the old Disneyland Hotel uh, monorail station, and it still takes guests into Tomorrowland inside Disneyland Park along the same exact beamway that existed prior to the 1999-2001 expansion. The Disneyland Hotel started a major renovation in 2009, beginning with the Dreams Tower. Renovation of the hotel included new windows, wallpaper, carpeting, and decor. The Dreams Tower, completed in 2010, became the Adventure Tower. The Wonder Tower became the Frontier Tower after its completion in 2011, and the Magic Tower became the Fantasy Tower in 2012. The Neverland Pool area also received a redesign which was completed in 2012. This transformation included six new cabanas and two new water slides featuring the iconic original park signage at the top along with replicas of the Mark I monorails encasing both slides. A new four-foot pool was built between the former Neverland Pool and water play area. Now, in 2001, two brand new dining locations at the Disneyland Hotel opened, replacing the former Hooks Point, Crocs Bites and Bar Beers, and the Wine Cellar, and the Lost Bar locations. Tangaroa Terrace, of course, is a new location that serves casual dining, and the new bar, Trader Sam's Enchanted Tiki Bar, which is awesome, and we spend many, many <laughs> nights at. Now, these two new locations are rather small inside, but there's plenty of outdoor seating, including seating by the gigantic fireplace by the D-Ticket Pool entrance. And I know while we were there for the Communitor, we spent a lot of time walking from Disneyland to Trader Sam, basically. Yes. And yes. It's, it's a long walk. I mean, it wasn't bad. It's kind of crazy sense. to think that the hotel, I mean, you know, thinking of downtown Disney area mm -hmm. now, that the hotel itself extended as far as where the monorail station is now. Yeah. Um, considering now it's just, you know, a barren wasteland that you have to walk through <laughs> to get back to the hotel. Um, I mean... 
I'm not bashing downtown Disney or anything. I like it, of course. But it's just oh, yeah. crazy to think how far the hotel actually came out and how much they knocked down of it. Oh, definitely. So, well, if you guys have a comment or a question about the Disneyland Hotel, then call us and leave us a goat mail at 424-785-4628. Again, that's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is The Art and Flair of Mary Blair by John Canemaker. And, you know, Mary Blair is probably one of the most well-known artists to ever come out of the Disney Studios. She actually had a career well before Disney as a watercolorist with her husband, Lee. They were part of the pioneering California watercolor series of artists. Um, but, you know, she really came into her own after the Goodwill trip to South America with El Grupo, which all the communal corps cadets should know about El Grupo. And if they, they don't, don't, look at Jeff's us. Come, yeah, Jeff's coming into your house. Oh, they make about. me dinner. I'm okay with it. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. So, you know, if you ask most people, Mary Blair would probably be one of the most recognizable names besides Walt Disney that came out of the studio, probably because of the, you know, all the work she did on It's a Small World for the World's Fair. And, you know, and I bet you if you put her name in a hat with some of the other nine old men, her name would be the only one that people would recognize. Yeah. Maybe. I, I definitely <laughs> think so. I mean, there's really no denying how iconic she is and her art mm -hmm. style is. Um, yeah. And in fact, you know, right as of right now, the Walt Disney Family Museum, they're, they're currently running their exhibit on uh, Mary Blair, which is gorgeous, by the way. <laughs> if you have not seen it, go check it out. But, rubbing it in. I know. I, I'm going to go see it again. I don't mean to rub it in. <laughs> sorry. But, um, but, yeah, but it's because of that exhibit that we're actually getting a re-release of this book, The Arden Flair, Mary Blair. Um, because years ago, uh, the book in its original form came mm -hmm. out. And it was a very short run. And, you know, up until a few weeks ago, it was going for hundreds of dollars on eBay. But thankfully yeah. now we have this re-release so I can afford it. Um, <laughs> well, and except now we for the people that, that already have it and we're going to sell it for their college, yeah. kids' college education. Yeah, sorry, guys. Now, sorry now I won't put your kids through college. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the art of Mary Blair, the art and flair of Mary Blair is almost a perfect book for Mary Blair fans. You know, whether they're just now getting into animation and looking at her art uh, or people who have loved animation for years. John Canemaker is an animation historian par excellence and is assuredly the best person to write this book. Canemaker uh, takes a really light hand with the history, but he really offers a surprising amount of uh, artistic criticism of Mary's work in relation to her career as an artist. And when I say criticism, <laughs> I'm not talking about, you know, you know, that shirt's ugly, Jeff, but more like... Look, I know, you looked at your shirt to go, what was... <laughs> I actually did look at my shirt. I'm like, how, can you, how do you know what I'm wearing? But but, but a critical eye. You nice know, shirt, is, George. Is, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I needed some validation. Um, so he takes a critical look at her work as an artist and her career. And, you know, Kane Maker doesn't gloss over anything, but he really does a wonderful job of distilling years of his own study and teaching animation into a very understandable format. You really will learn a lot about Mary... But the real treasure, as you can expect, is her artwork. Yeah, I, I really feel like because the book is so affordable now, you kind of need to buy two copies so you can <laughs> read one, and then you can take pictures of the other one and you can frame them, because her work is fantastic. I mean, we all know her art is good, but it is that good. And if you're a Disney fan, chances are you're also a big Mary Blair fan as well. So, I mean, you might as well just buy two. 
Um, and obviously, <laughs> it showcases a lot of her more famous pieces, but there's also some obscure ones in there as well that I had never seen before. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was a cool little pleasant surprise, and it was a great to see like a little peek behind some of her work and where she was in life when she was working on certain things. And, you know, I, I don't know, I just found it really interesting how he kind of tied it all t- together. Oh, definitely. Kane Maker divides the book into the different careers of her life. You know, the pre-Disney, which was mostly watercolor, her early life. You have, of course, all the Disney work. You have the post-Disney, where she was involved with a ton of uh, advertising for major chains, uh, major brands across the country. And then, you know, she was brought back into Disney for It's a Small World, um, the wonderful mural at the Contemporary Resort at the Grand Canyon Concourse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we love that one. And... You know, it's it's it, it, Maker was able to select uh, a really good collection of her art, but it's woefully limited simply because it's a book that isn't big enough itself. You know, over the the series of the book, you can see how she grew artistically and how she developed her iconic style over her career. Uh, many of the photos of the artwork are really provided courtesy of Mary's friends and fellow artists. And, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to own an original piece of art from her at all. I don't. It would be. Yeah. I don't know. I would have to stare at it for hours. Yeah. Especially how we're talking about buying a second copy of the book just to cut out the photographs or the, the images and frame them. You know, I, I do agree. This is definitely a must have. You know, considering how it straddles so many different aspects of Disney and her art, you know, in general. Yeah, yeah. And and like you said, I mean, it's very limited in its selection. And to me, that's the biggest drawback. I mean, obviously, there's nothing wrong with the content or the art because it's all great. But I would love to have, you know, a 5,000-page coffee table book just filled (laughs) with her artwork. I mean, everyone would. Um, But, you know, I am happy that this book exists. And there's also a companion book um, that features... um, a, a lot of her other artwork that's also stuff that's showcased at the museum uh, exhibit, the uh, Magic Color Flare, the World of Mary Blair. So the two of them together make up a pretty fantastic selection of Mary's uh, artwork and her life overall. So, I mean, this book on its own, though, is definitely well worth the price, and I definitely think it's well worth picking up. Exactly. Uh, this week's book was The Art and Flare of Mary Blair by John K. Maker. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? If you visit Disney's Hollywood Studios, everyone's favorite half-day park. Eh. Well, you're laughing because it's true. Eh, yeah, you know. Uh, sure, we'll just okay, go. Okay, just making sure. So when you're visiting the everyone's favorite half-day park, you can shop at Tatooine Traders when you exit Star Tours. Or if you just want to go into the shop, you don't actually have to exit tar- Star Tours. They just want you to buy stuff. Anyway. The previous name for this shop was Endor Vendors, which, aside from the clever rhyming scheme, is referring to the moon of Endor, home of everyone's favorite cannibalistic little teddy bears from uh, Return of the Jedi. Now, however, when Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, or as I like to call it, <laughs> why George Lucas, why? When that came out in 1999, Imagineers decided that the name and the theme of the shop should probably better reflect a planet featured in the new film. Now, this is where we're going to get really nerdy, guys, so hang, hang on to your, your nerd hats. The sign outside the store right now reads, Tattooe Traders, in both English and Arabesh. I'm sorry. Now, for those who don't know nerds, 
Uh, Arabesh is the language of the Galactic Empire. Everybody knows that. And of mm -hmm. course, while Arabesh lettering adds to the theme, it is, in fact, not supposed to be there. Now, you see, the store is supposed to reflect a time period of Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. And then it stands to reason that Tatooine is not under Imperial control. And if they're not under Imperial control, then the Galactic Empire's language would not have made its way to this small desert planet in the Outer Rim. And thus, Arabesh would not be known to them. And then, the sign is wrong. However, it still looks cool, so they kept it the way it is. End nerd rant. I was gonna say, I wonder if we'll get any emails or messages about this one. Why? So, well, I don't know, just maybe there'll be some fanboys that will want to argue with us. Listen, I'm not a Star Wars nerd, <laughs> but I will argue with you purely well, for the sake of arguing. I was going to say because you like arguing. Just right? because I like arguing. <laughs> yes, one of the original ideas for the name of the show was not Communicore Weekly, but Arguing Weekly. <laughs> Jeff argues with everything that George says <laughs> weekly. <laughs> However, no it's really hard to rhyme that with anything, so Steve and Andy were like, eh, Communicore Weekly? And we're like, yeah. Sure, that sounds better. And it's got a Disney tie in. Go yeah, and that one makes more sense. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe next time we'll do the entire show, the script in Arabesh, and we'll figure out how long it takes us to you know to read it. it it's uh, Arabesh is the written version of the language, mm -hmm. but Basic is the is the spoken. Well, that's version true. Of yeah, it. Basic. So we're is we're doing language. the show in Basic now. Well, that's true. We are. So boom. Ooh. Take that. Nice. Nice. Star well, Wars. Okay. Boom. <laughs> that's right. And we've made it. Yes. I use it as a verb. <laughs> okay, guys. Well. Thank you so much for watching and listening to another of our ridiculous episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Please leave us a comment and give us a rating on the good old iTunes. We'd love to hear from you guys. Yep. And you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com with your questions, comments, and concerns. And of course, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. You know, on our last episode, we talked about doing stuff like yep. Mustache Mondays and Tony Baxter Tuesdays. And guess what? We delivered. And we're going to keep doing it now. So like us on Facebook and you can get in on that action. <laughs> and spend your day laughing. Yes, exactly. Like we do. Okay. So you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagineerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, give us a call on the good old Communicore Weekly Goat line at 424-785-4628. Leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, yeah. And, you know, while you're there, waiting for the whole music to stop, pick up your own copy of Communicore Weekly, the musical on sale everywhere it is awesome the best 45 minutes you will spend ever aside from listening to our shows but they're never 45 minutes unless you squish two of them together that's true or it's a live show or it's a live show which could be about two or three hours yeah exactly of us around right. yes and before this gets any longer for jeff heimbuck i'm george taylor and for george taylor i'm jeff heimbuck thanks so much for listening guys and gals we'll see you next time on communicore weekly the greatest online show Yoshi, 